Well, we're going to just be in this first, the first few verses of Romans chapter 8 this morning, verses 1 to 4. And I mentioned it uh, just a minute ago, mentioned it in the prayer. Uh, last week, or this week even, Monday marked a significant day for us as a country, didn't it? Freedom Day. Like, I don't know if anyone's feeling freedom right now, but apparently we're in a new age, a new world. Freedom Day uh, began on Monday, and you probably saw the scenes on social media or on the news of of crowds in nightclubs at literally one minute past uh, midnight. I don't know how they got them all in there in 60 seconds, but hey, we've got to trust them and, and think that they did. But, but crowds together celebrating Freedom Day at one minute past uh, midnight. And I'm sure it wasn't top of many of our lists, although I don't know some of you ladies, so maybe, maybe you were there. Who am I to say? But probably wasn't top of my list, kind of going out clubbing is the first thing I want to do with my freedom. But freedom is something that actually we all connect with. It's part of uh, the natural kind of makeup of who we are, the desire to experience freedom. And if you think of some of the stories that make up our culture, our culture is built on stories. The stories that make our culture are freedom stories. We love freedom stories, like stories of people who've been trapped or enslaved or in some sort of imminent danger, and then they find release from that. Like, we love those stories. Like, think of everything from... Sleeping Beauty to um, Star Wars. There we go, Mark. Happy birthday. Harry Potter. Um, all of the, the stories that we know and love have a sense of, of um, just this thread of freedom in it. A people or a group of people who are in danger or in threat are being oppressed by someone or something. And they, they are fighting for this freedom. We love these stories and we love them because, folks, they deeply connect with our own experience. Every human that comes into this world, every single one of us comes into this world with our freedom constraint. We are a people by our nature who are enslaved. We're enslaved to our sin. That's what the Bible calls rebellion to God and his holy law. We're enslaved to it. And our natural inclination is is to sin. And that sin holds us captive from being truly human. Like, let's not be fooled. The world will tell us something different. But to be truly human is not to be who we want to be. It's to be who God created us to be. He's our creator. And so if we want to know what it is to be human, we need to look and listen to him. And what he says to be truly human is to be holy, that is without sin, and to be righteous. That is to be able to stand before God without fear of judgment, with right standing. And when we find ourselves to be that, to be true humans, to be holy and righteous, that is when we get to be truly free. That is what it means to be truly alive, to be holy and righteous in the presence of God. Now, Romans chapter 8 uh, that we read before, I should say, by the way, on the back of your sermon sheet, uh, service sheets, there's a QR code at the bottom. You could scan that, the left-hand one, and there's a sermon guide in there, and it will tell you what we're looking at each week with just some reflections on there, lots of resources at the back as well. So you can track along with us, um, even if you're away at different parts through the summer. But Romans chapter 8 is one of those chapters that is just full of gold. Like it is just littered with, with just tons of jewels of truths, primarily truths of who we are. Of who we are. That is the big message of Romans 8. This is who you are. And the Apostle Paul who writes it, you can just... Uh, just hear him, just want to remind the church in Rome. The church in Rome. We'll let him go by. The church in Rome. It'd be good when we don't have to have that anymore. Eh? 
who they are in Christ. If you look, just glance down at it, it starts and it ends with just this beautiful bookend. In verse 1, it starts with a reminder that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. The last verse, verse 39, the other bookend is uh, there is no separation. And the thing that you'll see in both of those verses is that is a truth for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no separation for us. Being in Christ is the thread that holds this whole whole chapter together. And there's something really unique about chapter 8 as well. In none of the 39 verses do you hear Paul say, say, do. There's no imperative in there. There's no, okay, now this is the truth. Now go and do this or change this. He doesn't say any of that, which is really unlike Paul. Like Paul likes to tell us what to do. For in this chapter, he just says, this is who you are. This is who you are. You are in Christ. This is who you are. And we're going to hear that repeated each week as we go through this chapter. We're going to start with these first four verses. And verse one of chapter eight. Let me stick my neck out here. Verse one of chapter eight, I think is the most important truth for humanity to hear. It is the most important truth that any one of us could hear. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just deal with that therefore first before we move on. The therefore is connecting what Paul is saying in chapter 8 to something else. So if you've read the book of Romans, you'll know that it's Paul unpacking the gospel. Chapters 1 to 7, he's shown us what the gospel is. And it's a glorious just picture of, of God creating us and us, us walking in rebellion. But God in his mercy and grace sending his son to live amongst us, to die for us. And Jesus dying on the cross to bring us into the family of God. And us receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving adoption as sons and daughters. It's a glorious presentation of the gospel. And you get to chapter 7 and Paul kind of just feels a little bit upset. It's an interesting chapter. Now, the therefore in verse 1 in our um, section this morning, verses 1 to 4, it could be uh, pulling us all the way back to the start of Romans, or it could be pulling us back, which is more likely, to chapter 7. So just, if you're not there, just turn the page over to chapter 7. We're going to look at a couple of verses. Because in Romans chapter 7, you have the Apostle Paul agonizing. Agonizing about the frustration that he finds himself in as he battles against sin. And let me just say, as a quick aside, there is a lot of debate about whether Paul is talking in Romans chapter 7 about himself as a Christian or himself before he was a Christian. And I've got a really strong view on what it is, but it doesn't matter, so I'm not going to tell you. What matters, and actually the reality is, Christians sin and those who aren't Christians sin, and so what Paul says in Romans 7 is for both. But what Paul finds himself in in this chapter is, is a man frustrated, a man who is agonizing, a man who's, who's despairing. Look down at the end of uh, Romans chapter 7. He comes to this conclusion as he's battling against his sin. Wretched man that I am, verse 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul kind of imagines the struggle with sin as if he's got a corpse on his back. Like a dead body strapped to his back. And that's what it feels like to battle with sin. He's like carrying this dead body around with him. And he says, who's going to release me of this? Who's going to free me of this corpse on my back? And listen, like we're not going to read the whole thing, but listen to how um, um, kind of focused on self chapter 7 is. Like there's so many personal pronouns. There's over 40 personal pronouns in chapter 7. And don't worry if you don't know what a personal pronoun is. I'll tell you what it is now. Look down at verse 14, for example. Chapter 7, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I is a personal pronoun, I'm of the flesh. 
sold on the sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law, and it goes on and on. I, me, my, their personal pronouns. Chapter 7 is very focused on Paul. He's describing his battle with sin, and the battle he is in is exhausting. It is despairing. And I want us to really see this. It is isolating. And Paul is battling with sin. He feels like he's on his own. And that is what a life enslaved to sin produces. It produces frustration with not being who we're created to be. And it creates isolation as we try and find freedom from our sin ourselves outside of God. And the isolation that, that we experience with sin outside of Christ continues all the way through to death. When we stand before God, once we leave this world, if we have not been freed from our sin, folks, we will stand before God alone on that day. And the verses we read, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8 in Romans, remind us of the sure and certain conclusion. If that is you, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christian on that day, when you stand before God in judgment, Paul is clear. There is condemnation for you and there is death. The penalty of our sin is condemnation. That, that means the right judgment of God and the power of sin is eternal death. In chapter 7, Paul feels the weight of his sin and he cries, "Our wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Judgment day is coming. And just for a moment, let's just imagine what that day would be like. On judgment day, you will stand before God and you will either be announced guilty or not guilty. And God is an honest and fair judge. He is perfect. And he will lay out the evidence of your life. And when he looks at your record, he will see you either as a sinner or as righteous. And if he sees you as a sinner, the judgment is death, separation from him. And from that day forward, your existence for all eternity will be one of anguish and torment. And on that day, no amount of pleading with God will work. No amount of excuses before God will work. There will be no rescue for you on that day. But there is rescue held out to every single one of us today. See that cry that Paul makes in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? On the final day, on the day of judgment, there will be no answer for the sinner, but there is an answer now. Look at verse 25. He asks the question and then he answers, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. There is the answer. Who will rescue us from this body of sin? Who will rescue us from our slavery to sin? Paul gives us the answer. Jesus. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who will deliver us from sin, folks? Jesus will deliver us from sin. And for those who have been delivered from sin, for those who stand in the freedom of being delivered from that slavery, Paul says there is no condemnation for you. In fact, he says there is therefore now no condemnation. That word now, like there are so many three-letter words in the Bible that have so much impact. That little word now sits there as a comma. A comma that separates two, two parts of history. It's like that little bit in the book between two chapters and one chapter is a chapter of condemnation for humanity, for sin and the other chapter is a chapter of freedom from sin. And that little word now is the bridge between both of them. And who holds up the bridge? Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. 
We are in Christ. We receive all of the riches that Paul is going to lay out in this chapter. Starting today with just in these few verses, our freedom. If you are in Christ, then you are free. There is no condemnation for you. That is who you are. You are free, completely free from condemnation for your sin. In fact, verse 1 that we just read literally reads, there is therefore now not one condemnation. Isn't that beautiful? If you are in Christ, that is true for you. Nothing can be leveled at you by anyone, including God. There is no condemnation for you. That is a definitive statement. Full stop. There's nothing after it that says but or if or or, or any kind of thing that we have to do to, to get into that place of no condemnation. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus Full stop. And it's not like we can be in no condemnation and then move to being in con- condemnation and then, and then move back. No, that is where you are and that is who you are. For those who are in Christ, you are one who have no condemnation. You are free from condemnation for your sin. And that covers everything if you're in Christ. Every sin that you have engaged in, every sin that you are engaging in now, every sin that you will engage in in the future, If you're in Christ, no condemnation is stamped on top of it. There's no condemnation for your outbursts of anger. There's no condemnation for your sexual sin. There's no condemnation for your failures as a parent. There's no condemnation for your gluttony. There's no condemnation for your secret jealousy. There's no condemnation for your uh, shameful addictions. There's no condemnation for your passivity in marriage. There's no condemnation for your selfish desires. There's no condemnation for you constantly finding fault in others. There's no condemnation for those embarrassing screen time stats that come up on your iPhone at the end of the week. There's no condemnation for keeping God's money that he's given you to yourself there's no condemnation for loving the world more than Jesus there's no condemnation for your road rage there's no condemnation for neglecting God's word for months there's no condemnation for your for your lies there's no condemnation for your theft there's no condemnation for your pride there's no condemnation for your secret spending or lustful looks or spiteful thoughts there is no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus for any sin and if you're sitting there thinking yeah but but this one that as well do you hear me if you are in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation that is a legal declaration made by God that frees you from the penalty of your sin and so now when God looks at you he finds no fault in you he holds nothing against you he has nothing to punish you for because when he looks at you he finds you in Christ and he's already punished his son and that, those two words, that sentence, in Christ, that is so key for the, the whole of this chapter. Being people who are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see that those two words come up again, in Christ or, or by the Spirit. Paul's going to keep coming back to that. Now remember in chapter 7 how Paul was so kind of self-focused, me, my, I, all of the, the personal pronouns, there's none of that in chapter 8. None of it. Now when Paul thinks of himself, he thinks of him in Christ, in the Spirit. That's who I am. Now when we look back down at the passage here, folks, just look at verse um, uh, 2 to 4. I'm going to read it out for us again. We see this theme of Spirit come up again. Paul says this, The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law 
might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Being in the Spirit, folks, changes everything. Being in Christ by the power of the Spirit changes everything. It changes us from being people who are in slavery to our sin and death to being people who are free in Christ. And as he uses that word law in those few verses, we need to understand he's talking about two different types of law. So when we think of law, when we hear law, we probably primarily think of a legal requirement or if we're thinking in the Bible, we think of of God's law, the Ten Commandments or the, the 613 laws that are written in the Old Testament. So that is one sense of the law. It is, a, it is a legally binding thing. But law can also be used in the sense of it being like a driving force or a power. So think of the law of gravity. Like we don't, that's not a legal requirement that we submit to gravity. Like we, we just do. It's a power. It's a force. Or think about when we say that she's a law unto herself. Like if we're talking about she's driven by something. There's a force that is driving her. In verses 3 to 4, Paul's using that first use of the law. He's talking specifically about the Old Testament law. God giving his people commands. Laws that God gave us that if we could keep would demonstrate that we were righteous. Remember that? That's what it is to live, to be righteous and holy before God. If we could keep those laws, we'd be righteous without fault. That is the requirement for life. To be righteous and holy and without sin. And yet verse 3 presents a problem for us. Verse 3 says that actually the law only served to show us how unrighteous we were. Our sin and our flesh were stronger than the law and it overpowered the law. And so, folks, humanity had no hope of meeting the righteous requirements of the law. And because we couldn't, we forfeit life. We forfeit life. This is why God sent his son, Jesus. See that in verse 3? God sends his son as a human in the full fragility and vulnerability of being a human. He took on flesh and blood and Jesus lives the perfect life. Jesus meets the requirements for life. Jesus doesn't break one law. He doesn't commit one sin. And so the righteous requirements of the law, the requirements for life are found in Jesus. They're fulfilled in him. And at the cross, Jesus became sin for us. And he became the penalty for our sin. He was condemned by God. And at the cross, he absorbed the power for sin in his death. And in his resurrection, he unites us to himself. We are united to Christ in his death, which means that we have died to the penalty and the power of sin because he has. And he unites us to himself in his life, which means that right now, as he does, we stand before God as he does, holy and righteous, free from condemnation. Let me say it again. That is who we are right now because Christ is we are. We are free from condemnation. And so what are we to do? I know Paul doesn't kind of call us to anything, but it wouldn't be a sermon if I didn't, so I need to call us to something. If we are in Christ and we have no condemnation, no judgment of God from God for our sin, what do we do with that? Well, Paul assumes that if that is us, we will no longer walk in the flesh, but we will walk in the spirit. And he assumes that Because we have the power to do that. It's here in uh, the second verse, verse 2, that Paul uses the second use of that word law. So he's already used it in the sense of the the requirements of God. In verse 2, he uses law in the sense of, of power. Let me read it again for us. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus 
from the law of sin and death. So the law of the spirit and the law of the spirit of, uh, sorry, the law of the, uh, the spirit of life and the law of the spirit of death in verse 2, uh, uh, talking about a driving power, a force. What Paul is saying is that there is a power that drives us to sin and that power dominates us. It, it leads us. And unless we're in Christ, that will be the domineering power and force in our life. But he says, if we're in Christ, there is a new power that's within us. And this power drives us to do what is right. And he says, that is what it means. That is what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. To be led by this Spirit. To be led by a power, God within us, that drives us to do right. And what does that look like practically? Well, I think one of the most beautiful examples we find in Scripture is in the Gospels. The Gospel writers um, share the story of a woman who's caught in adultery. You might know it. She's been having an affair with another man. Presumably her and this man are married. And the religious leaders find out about um, her act of adultery. They know that Jesus is in the temple. And so they arrest her and take her from wherever she is. And they drag her up to the temple. Now, don't think that's like taking someone from next door and bringing them to here. Like they they would have dragged her for for a mile or two. up Up a steep hill with everyone watching with the eyes of the world looking on, knowing that she's done something wrong with crowds gathering around her. And she walks up this temple hill with the religious leaders, covered in her shame and her guilt, probably eyes stung with tears. And she comes into the temple and they throw her in front of Jesus. And the temple is packed full of people. People have come to hear Jesus teach. People have come to, to gather and hear a religious word. There are religious folk around and there is a religious kind of fever in the air. And she's brought in and thrown in front of Jesus on her own. I always think it's interesting the man's not there. Like it takes two people to commit adultery, but they just bring the woman. They bring her in on her own. She's covered in shame. With judging eyes of everyone around her, eyes fixed on her into the temple, the holy place. This is Jesus' temple. Jesus is in there teaching. It's, it's his temple. It's where he is going to bring his people to, to God. The temple is the meeting place of God, but it is also the place that Jesus makes atonement for sin. They bring her in and throw her before Jesus. And they've assumed the death penalty for this woman. They think that she should be stoned to death for committing adultery. Now, technically, that's what their law said, but culturally, adultery was so widespread that the death penalty was rendered just obsolete. No one, no one was stoned to death for adultery because everyone was doing it. But that is their verdict, and they turn to Jesus and ask for, their, for his agreement. What do you say, Jesus? You know what the law says about this. What do you say? And I love just this picture of Jesus bending down into the sand and the dust, and he takes his finger and he starts writing something. And I'm like, oh, just tell us what what you're writing. But it doesn't. He writes something in the ground. He bends down where the woman is right next to him. There's a few reasons he might be doing that. He might be bending down as a bit of a a social act to to make the religious leaders feel like they're different to him. Coming down here and then being up there socially would have had a statement around it. He may have been bending down and, and writing something of the law with his finger, showing them that, I am the one who's written the law. I think more likely he bends down to be with the woman. To be with her in her sin. To meet her in her shame and her guilt. He bends down because he knows that she's vulnerable. 
And she's on her own. Remember, that's what sin does. It isolates us. And so Jesus bends down and meets her in this moment of weakness and turmoil and guilt and shame. And I think he does it to take the eyes off her and to detract the focus onto himself. Look at me, don't look at her. And he turns up to the leaders and says, okay, whoever out of you hasn't sinned, you throw the first stone. If you're so holy, if you're so righteous, you go first. And he bends down and carries on writing. And a few moments go by and then he looks up again and they're all gone. There's no one there. Just him and the woman. And he turns to the woman and he says, where have they all gone? And she sees him and looks at him and immediately knows that he is the Christ. And she just says, Lord. She recognises righteousness in front of her. She recognises Jesus' love for her right in front of her. And she just confesses him as her Lord. And then Jesus turns to her and says, go and sin no more. Folks, if we want to know what to do when we hear that we are in Christ and there is no condemnation for us, that is it. Jesus says to us, Go and sin no more. The literal translation of what he says is this. From now on, no more sin. (laughs) Go now and sin no more. Leave your life of sin. Brothers and sisters, put it to death and do that because of Jesus. Because we have met him, because we have experienced this deep love for us. Because he was condemned for us do that because of Jesus. From now on, no more sin. John Stott, who was a wonderful preacher, says this about this passage. We are set free from the law as a way of acceptance, but we are obliged to keep it as a way of holiness. We don't need to keep the law. We get to, and we should want to, because of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to share this meal together in a moment, folks. And as we gather around this table, this is a great opportunity to make an immediate response to the passage, an immediate response to what God is teaching us in his word this morning. As we take this meal, I'd encourage us to confess of our sin. Remember, that still indwells us. We still wrestle with it like Paul did. It's still there. Use the time to confess and repent, to resolve, to leave it behind and to walk in the Spirit. And as you take this meal, remember who you are. If you are a believer, then you are in Christ, and there is no condemnation for you, none. Jesus has paid for it all, all of it. When Satan reminds us of our past, as he may well do as we take this meal, you remind him of Jesus' past. When Satan tempts us and discourages us, remember who we are. We are in Christ. We have his spirit within us, a power that drives us and enables us to walk in his ways. So why don't we just bow our heads for a few moments, folks. I'm going to give thanks for this bread, for the juice and the wine. And Lottie's going to hand it out and just take your time as you eat this meal and use this time well. Who will deliver us from this body of death? Jesus, we thank you You have answered that for us. We thank you that it is you. Thank you that you have taken on our condemnation for us so that we are now free 
And we recognize that that is a desire that everyone in this world wants. We all want to be free. We all want to live. We thank you that you have brought us into true freedom and true life. So Jesus, open our eyes now to see who we are. And if any of us are not in Christ Jesus, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see that that is where we need to be found. Save us from that day of judgment where we will stand alone and suffer for eternity without you. Save now, Jesus, if that is a work that needs to be done. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for grace. We thank you for just how that stands opposed to slavery. Thank you that you have saved us by grace. There was nothing that we did. You have saved us by grace alone. And you've marked over us a truth of no condemnation. Help us to fight well to to put our sin to death with the help of your spirit. Help us to be motivated out of love. We want to be those who will hear those words from Jesus. No more sin. And we will walk in the way of the spirit. So in these moments of confession and repentance, Holy Spirit, shine the light of Christ into the darkness of our hearts and expose the areas in which we have offended you. And lead us in the ways everlasting, ways of righteousness, we pray. Amen.